to wear this mask. Uh, but truly, I am really honored and excited to be a part of the group here. Uh, Jacob has been a phenomenal teacher so far, and you guys have done a really good job of making Leah and I feel included in this group and welcomed in this family, and I really want to thank you guys for that and uh, for this opportunity today, but also for the opportunity with this whole program that I get to be a part of. So be turning in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. As we gather together as a church, it's not uncommon for the preacher to say something like, hey, we got to remember that this Christianity thing isn't something we leave in the pews. It's got to affect the actions we take every day in our lives. And so a lot of times the point of a sermon will be like, you gotta, you got to do something. You've know, you got to be more patient with your spouse. You've got to speak the truth more boldly. But there's also an aspect of Christianity that's not what we do, but how we do them, the mindset that we're in. And Jacob talked about this a little bit last month in his Wednesday night talks, that when we consider who we are, uh, and especially who we are through the lens of Christ, that it changes the way that we do certain things, and it lends us a perspective. And so I want to talk about the way that we can, by mindfulness and by mindset, uh, add new meaning to the things we do, to make them uh, more spiritual as we consider them through the lens of Christ and as you know, citizens of the kingdom of Christ. And I want to talk about one way we can do that today that's something super ordinary, something really mundane we do every day, and that is eating. Now, eating is one of the simple pleasures of life. I love to eat. Most times I do it three times a day, not counting snacks and dessert. And every sane person knows there's no pleasure quite like a chocolate chip cookie straight out of the oven with some ice cream on it. Maybe that's not your thing. Maybe you like steak, maybe you like strawberries, whatever it is, you understand that food is really good, that it is one of the blessings that God gives us that we should count one by one. But it's really easy in this fast-paced life to just like eat for sustenance. You know, you're running late for work, so you grab a bar on the way and you eat it while you're fighting through traffic. Or you, you run home from work, it's a Wednesday night, you gotta shovel food down your face, shovel food down your kid's face, and then you, know, you get to, to church, there's no time for meditation, no time for prayer, no time for thoughtfulness. And that is really a travesty. And so when we eat and we eat it mindlessly, we miss out on one of the ways that I think God really intends for us to be pointed toward him. And we miss out on one of the easiest ways to bring God into our homes and our daily lives. So I want to work today to answer the question, how do we grow closer to God through food? So first of all, we got to recognize food is a gift. Now there are two parts to this. Food is a gift, and it is a gift from God. So it's basic human knowledge. Food is a gift. Food is good. You don't need me to use the Bible to tell you that because you know it. But one thing I think we can learn from the Bible on this is that food is intended to be good. It's intended for us to be something that we enjoy. And when you look in that passage in Ecclesiastes 3, you'll see that. It says, I perceived there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. That He's saying God gave us food as a reward for our work for us to enjoy. 
And, you know, back then, the connection of food and work is a lot closer. You know, you imagine, like, a farmer as he eats his prized tomato or a fisherman as he eats his prized catch. Like, that's the feeling that we get and that they would have received, you know, from eating food. And the, the preacher here in Ecclesiastes says that God gave us that just like God set eternity in man's heart in verse 11, the verse right before here. He set this desire, this excitement about food in our heart to bless us as a gift to man. But the other part of this is that food is, uh, is undeniably from God. And this should not surprise us because, you know, God made everything, so obviously he made food. But the other thing is, like, if food is good, as we you know, just talked about, like James talks about that every good and perfect gift comes from God. So obviously food as a good gift is one of those things that comes from God. And Psalm 145 talks about the way that God sustains us. As he's exploring uh, just how amazing and wonderful God is, his praiseworthiness, one of the points that the psalmist brings up is that God provides food for all creation. We'll see Psalm 145, 15 and 16 says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. See, God sustains us, uh, and he sustains us with food. His hand holds all the blessings we would ever need, and he wants us to recognize that. Deuteronomy 28 explores this, uh, this relationship because God wants us to understand something very fundamental, and that is that he is the source of food, that if we have food, it comes from him, and that he can also take it away. So as Moses is about to, well, he's not going to lead them into the promised land, but they're standing at the edge of the promised land, and Moses, he sets the two people up, the, the children of Israel up in two groups on two different mountains, and they sort of shout at each other about the blessings and the curses of following or not following God. And what you'll notice is that these blessings and curses are pretty much the same things that are being blessed or cursed. And it just depends on um, you know, whether they're following God or whether they're not following God. But one of the first things that's mentioned in both groups is that God is going to give them food or take away their food. We'll see that in Deuteronomy 28, uh, verse 2. Uh, we'll start in the middle of verse 2. It says, if you, obey, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of the ground, the fruit of the cattle, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. So if you follow God, he's going to give you the food and the, the nourishment that you need. But on the other hand... In verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you go in and cursed shall you be when you go out. God wanted them to understand that before they entered the promised land, that the food that they were going to have or not have was entirely contingent upon him. God has power to give us food 
and he has power to take it away. He has total control over food. So then as we receive food, we need to recognize with humble awe that every apple we bite into, every watermelon on a hot summer day, every piece of pecan pie, every slice of turkey, down to the tiniest crumbs of chip bag that you eat when you hope no one is looking, all of these are blessings from God. And it is only by his good grace that we have them to enjoy. And the key word here is enjoy. Think with me for a moment about flavor as an implicit proof for the goodness of God. And this is really one of the reasons I wanted to preach this lesson today. See, God designed food and he designed us and the world from the ground up. And he could have made some weird sludge, it tastes like oatmeal, and it has all the nutrients we need, and that's the only thing we ever eat. But he didn't do that. He gave us grapes and chicken and baked potatoes and broccoli and chocolate and all of these really good things. And from the beginning, he gave them every plant on the face of the earth and every tree to have for food. And ever since I took time to really consider just the amazing blessing that flavor is, because we don't need it, but God gives it to us as another proof that he's going to bless us so much more than we need or deserve. And every time I think about that, it changes the way that I eat food. You know, I was at this potluck back in January, and, you know, at the beginning of the potluck, before you eat the food, you know, you, you pray like you always do in a potluck. But it's a pasta bar, okay? So I'm going through, I got some penne and some fettuccine and pesto and chicken. I was like, man, this is so good. I got down to the table, and I'm looking at my plate, and I could not help but to pray again for my food because I was so thankful that I had not just food, but like really, really good food. And as I reflect on that and God as the source of that really good food, it reminds me that food isn't just good, but that God is really good. And when we're thankful for the food that he blesses us with, we are constantly reminded of his goodness. More on that in a moment. So the thing is that God knows food is really good, but he also knows that food can easily become mundane and that we can take it for granted really easily. And that's why he warns in Deuteronomy 8 uh, that we should not do that. So I'd like to posit that it's not just that there are blessings associated with recognizing the goodness of food and recognizing and being thankful for food, but that when we fail to do that, it can lead us to idolatry. In Deuteronomy 8, it's kind of a lengthier reading, but I think, I think you need all of it for the point to come through. So Deuteronomy 8 says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten 
and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let's skip down to verse 17. Sorry. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has given me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish." It's so easy for us to eat our food to the fullest and then to forget where it came from. And we as men, we call ourselves the breadwinners. Or, you know, when we can just like go down to the store and we can get food anytime we want, then we we lose track of the source of food, which is God. We got to realize that God is the one giving us our food. And if we don't attribute our food to God, then we're going to attribute it elsewhere, to our own idols, to idols of self, idols of money, idols of convenience. And when we do that, this verse says that we will surely perish. Now turn over to Hosea chapter 10. Poetry uh, in the prophets they have this amazing ability to say so much in so few words. And here, uh, Hosea speaks of the reality of exactly what Moses was warning about. In Hosea 10, it says... Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. That the more God blessed them, the more they were like, wow, these idols are really working out for us. And they they forget. And that's so easy to do. But we got to remember that it's simple. God gave us the food, and he blesses us, he nourishes us. Without him, we would have nothing. And if we forget that, and we forget to thank God for his blessings, then our unthankfulness will lead us away from God. So, if food is a gift from God, you know, that's something we really need to remember. But there are of course, other elements to food. I don't have just a, a one-point sermon on that food is good. Um, so I'm going to explore those now. And one of them is that food takes a constant place in our lives. So, like, the decision for God to make food really good and really flavorful, that's not the only unnecessary blessing that we have with food. Because, of course, God designed the whole world from the ground up. And he could have made us so that we don't have to eat so frequently. You know, we see that when Elijah is really depressed about the hardness of the heart of Israel, God gives them this cake and it sustains it for 40 days. And sometimes you see that and you're really hungry and you're like, why couldn't God have done that for me? Uh, you know, or like, why didn't God design us so we didn't need to eat uh, so frequently? He could have made us so we only need to eat once a week or once a month, or he could have made us autotrophic like plants. So we stand in the sunlight and we're like, all right, I'm good. But God didn't do that. And You have to ask the question, why? And I think that the answer can be found in the way that God uses food through the Bible. And uh, I want to start here with the book of Leviticus. Now, 
in Leviticus, God lays out this way of life for the priests and the Jewish people. And like laws today, it's really not the most engaging of reading. But the truths buried just below the surface have a lot to teach us about God. And even though this legal code is for the Jewish people, it doesn't apply to us today in the same way, what it teaches us is a pattern, a way of living that has very spiritual implications. And the most impressive thing I think about Leviticus is just how thorough it is. You know, if you touch a dead body, then you're unclean, you gotta wash, you gotta wait outside the camp. Or if you get a rash or you get mold in your tent, you're unclean, you gotta wash, you gotta wait outside the camp. And this unclean state, it's not necessarily that you're sinful, just that you're unfit to come before the presence of God. And uh, it's kind of like when, like if you were invited to the presidential steak dinner. You're not gonna go from like working all day in the field and you're hot and sweaty in your overalls and you're like, all right, time to go to the presidential steak dinner. Like, you're gonna change. You're gonna take a shower. You're gonna clean yourself up because you understand that when you come into the presence of a very powerful being, uh, that it, that requires a certain amount of respect and a certain amount of reverence. And God lays out these uh, holiness things to teach us exactly that. So what made people clean and unclean? It was a lot of different things. So every part of your life had to be considered down to the most mundane. And there's not much more mundane than the food that you eat every day. And so chapter 11 explores this idea, the idea that food makes you clean or unclean. And there are strict guidelines for what makes a food clean or unclean. You know, they could eat lamb, but not rabbit, fish, but not crab, grasshoppers, but not worms. And everything they ate, they had to ask, is this clean or unclean? And God uses this to make a point. In Leviticus 11, 46 and 47, he sums this all up by saying that the point is distinction. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. So the point of all of this is that we are, they were supposed to make a distinction so that every time they put food in their mouth, every time the meat hit the pot, they had to ask themselves that simple question, is this clean? And the answer is simple. Either it was or it wasn't. And this exercise, every time they ate, became a pattern for their life. Is this clean or is it unclean? So they asked themselves, you know, I want to eat bass. Is that clean or is that unclean? You know, I want to have bacon. Is that clean or is that unclean? You know, Naboth, he's got a really nice vineyard. I think I'm going to steal it. Clean, unclean. And they ask themselves this every time they do something. And this pattern, this way of living, became something regular that they learned through the food that they ate. They learned to make a distinction. Now, these holiness standards with food don't really apply to us in the same way today. You know, because... In Mark 7, Jesus declares all food clean. He, he points out you know, what I pointed out about Leviticus 11, which is that the point isn't about the food. It's about teaching us to make a distinction. And he talks about how the real purity is purity of mind, purity of thoughts and actions and words. So we don't really learn the same thing about holiness from our food, not nearly as directly. But there are still 
really spiritual uh, things we can learn from the way that we eat. And the recurring nature of food as it's intended to teach us something. We'll go back to Deuteronomy 8 because I think here we learn another thing about the recurring nature of food. In Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, it says, And he humbled you and let you hunger. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Two really important things to note here. The first half of the verse, God let them hunger. He put that hunger in them because he wanted them to be discontent. He wanted them to be hungry because in their discontent, in their hunger, they recognize that they need something. They need God because they recognize they need food. That part is obvious, but he says, I gave you food so that you would understand that man does not live by just the food, but by God, the provider of the food. So, as humans, it's really easy for us, and especially as Americans, to not want to be dependent on anybody. You know, we, we don't want to need someone's help. We, we feel like that's, that's like weakness. But I think that's the whole point. I think God designed food. God made us hungry because he wants to be the answer to that hunger. That God made us empty so he could fill us. He made us restless so we would seek him. He made us hungry so that we would call out to him for satisfaction. You know, Matthew, 8, or Matthew 5, one of the Beatitudes, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And maybe that seems out of context, because I'm talking about food, and this is about spiritual food. But not if you understand that the bread isn't just bread. If the bread is a, a dependence on God, if it's an admission of weakness, if it's saying, God, I need you to fill me up, if it's a sign of God's faithful covenant to us, then the bread becomes not just bread, it becomes a reminder of who we are and who we are before God. And that if we trust him, he will take care of us. So then when we eat, we remember that God is the giver of all food. And this daily reminder, this three times daily reminder, shows us that when we're hungry, we can lean on God. Because without him, we can do nothing. But with him, when we're hungry, we know God will take care of us. And when we're lonely, we know God will take care of us. And when we're lost or we're scared, we know God will take care of us because he always has. His provisions have never failed, and neither will his love or his grace or his tender care. And we can and we must rely on God. Now, one more thing before we leave this reminder section, and that is, if God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, if God provides for us our food so much more than we need, that flavor, that huge degree more than what we need, if God has our best interest in mind in the little things of life, then we gotta understand that God has our best interest in mind in the big things of life. 
You know, when we, when we eat like a chocolate cake or a big bowl of raspberries, like it's, it's not a hard jump to say, look, God gave me these things. I really enjoy these things. Therefore, God gives me things that are good for me. But I think we can also make that connection with his law. For example, God gave me a commandment to love my wife. God gave me my wife. He showed me how to love my wife, and I really enjoy doing it. Therefore, God gives me things that are good for me. Another step forward. God gave us a command to love our neighbor. But our, our neighbor, he's so rude, and his hedge clippings are always on my lawn, and it's just, I don't know, I don't know. But at the same time, we understand that God gave us a command to love our neighbor. And that every other time God gave us something, that it was good for us. Now, I don't know about loving my neighbor, but I'm willing to trust God that he's not going to give me something that's bad for me. He hasn't let me down in the past. And this connection between food and the law of God is one that the psalmist makes in Psalm 19 when he compares the sweetness of honey to the goodness of God's laws. He says, the law of the Lord revives the soul. The precepts of the Lord make the heart rejoice. The commandments of the Lord enlighten the eyes. Everything God gives us is for our benefit. And we learn that from eating. But we perfect that in service. So eating is a daily reminder of our dependence on God and his constant care for us, as well as the goodness of the gifts that he gives us to make our life better. So notice then that when you leave here, what you do isn't going to be noticeably different. You're still going to go home or to your favorite Mexican restaurant and you're going to eat a meal that you enjoy. But the difference is going to be how. Instead of taking a bite of your taco and saying, wow, that's a good taco, you're going to say, wow, God has made my life richer by giving me this taco. The money that I use to buy it is his. And the breath that I use to earn that money is a gift from God. The flavor of the meat, the crunch of the taco shell. See, God didn't have to give me this richness, but he did. And how lucky am I that I get to enjoy this gift of God today? And, you know, I was so hungry. Brent would not stop talking about food during his sermon. And now I'm really hungry. But God gave me this taco to fill that need because God fills my every need. And when this is your habit, that then when adversity comes along, you remember that the God that gives you your daily bread will also protect you in the fires of life. And when you're, tempt when you're tempted to reject God's good blessings of his life through his laws, then you can remember that the God that gave you Girl Scout cookies also wants to make your life better by instructing you not to have an affair with your coworkers. So with that, I want to move to my final point. Uh, and up to this point, we've been talking about how food in the daily meals we have are intended to point us to God. But I want to talk about one very special meal, and that is the Lord's Supper. And I want to ask, why did God want us to eat as part of our worship? So in ancient Israel, eating together is, is no small thing. In some cases, like when Laban throws a feast for Jacob and Leah, it's, uh, 
it, it symbolizes a wedding. It symbolizes a union of families. But in other cases, it's just a sign of hospitality, like when Abraham receives his visitors, or uh, Jethro when he has Moses come over uh, for helping out his daughters. But their hospitality is a lot deeper than ours. You know, we invite someone over for lunch, and then we oh, have a good day, and then we, we send them on their way. But when you look at the way that Lot takes care of his guests, you know, he invites those angels in, he washes their feet, he makes them a feast. And that night, the villagers come and they're knocking on his door and they say, surrender your guests. And he puts his life and the life of his family on the line to protect his guests. Now, judgment aside on whether that's the right call for Lot, it speaks to the depth of the connection and the depth of the hospitality that existed in the ancient Near East. And God pulls on this cultural context to make a very profound point. And that is that the meals and the feasts that they have together, that tie the families together, um, they, it's, it's deeper than what we can understand. But at the same time, we can still imagine how cool, how amazing it would be to be the guest of like Abraham, you know, that great father of faith. But imagine how incredible it would be to be the guest of God himself. And this very special privilege is one that was afforded to the leaders of Israel in Exodus 24. So after the commandments, the Ten Commandments are given and you get this prologue to the laws, God invites these 74 men up on the mountain to eat with him. And this is no picnic in the park. In Exodus 19, we get a description of the mountain for when Moses went up originally. It says, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Now, with this terrifying picture in mind, we can imagine, as these men go up to the mountain in Exodus 24, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. How incredible is that? These mere humans got to eat with the God of the universe. They were in communion with him and in communion with one another. That's mind-boggling. To be in the presence of God, eating and sharing. What a terrifying ordeal, but also how incredible. And it makes you ask, you know, what wouldn't I give to have that same opportunity to eat in the presence of God? But see, it wasn't just these men. There's a greater communion with God as we observe the feasts that the people of Israel had. So they have these feast days, Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Booze, and these are religious holidays that are intended to have the people of Israel feast together and to remember the goodness of God. But in one of these, uh, we're talking about Passover, we get this very special picture into what happens. In Numbers 9, 
we get a story of them taking uh, part in the Passover celebration. And we talked earlier how ritual uncleanness made you unfit to enter the presence of God. But it also makes you unfit to participate in Passover for the very same reason that when you participate in Passover, you are coming before God. You are making an offering in the very presence of God and that Passover is then a national communion with God, an extension of that Sinai table where in some way all of Israel got to eat in the presence of God. Passover was a sacrifice to God that they took into their bodies as they remembered God's goodness. But see, it's not just that. It's also a feast that binds the nation together. They all got to eat together as they remembered and as they sacrificed and ate together as one group. See, God was among his people and his people were one another, were among one another eating and reflecting on their nationhood that they received from God. So by the first century, there's a pretty standard script for what this Passover looks like. Everyone in the family, they gather together. Uh, they'd have all of their, the food and the wine and the bitter herbs, and they, they set them out. And then the youngest member of the family asks, why is this night different from every other night? And the others will reply something like, this is the night that God brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And if he hadn't done that, we would still be slaves, which is why we must remember and speak of it to one another. So then Jesus comes along in Luke 22, and he says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Because that bread, that communion between man and God, it's not just about the Exodus anymore. It's about Jesus. Why is this night different from every other night? Because with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, Jesus is going to lead them from captivity. And he says he's not going to eat with them again until the kingdom of God comes. So in Acts 2, when the kingdom of God comes, we're to understand that Jesus is there. And when the apostles set the example of partaking of the Lord's Supper together, Jesus is there just as God was there in the Passover. And they're communing with one another, but they're also communing with God. And they're speaking to one another of the God that delivered them from captivity. And the national unity that ties them together as citizens of the kingdom of God. And this is why Paul is so upset in 1 Corinthians 11 when their disunity of the church creates factions even in the Lord's Supper. That when they were supposed to be communing with one another and with Christ, they're being selfish and going on ahead. And when the spirit of Christ should have unified them and taught them what it means to be humble, they are taking this opportunity to divide and to swell with pride. And that's just wrong. In, in the nation of India, they have this thing called the caste system. It's like a strict social stratification where the upper class people, they don't eat with the middle class, the middle class not with the lower class, and they don't, they don't mix. And this stratification is not a whole lot different from the situation in the first century. But in the 1790s, this Baptist minister named William Carey, he brought the gospel to India. And when they partake of the Lord's Supper, they defy social convention. They break caste when they break bread. Because they understand that the Lord's Supper 
is a unifying event that surpasses any earthly ranking, that the only title they need is follower of Jesus. And when we break bread in the presence of one another, we are bound by a unity that this world cannot break. And yet, as we commune with God in this way, we understand that there's something imperfect about it. We long to have this union deepened. Now, fortunately, the Lord's Supper also looks forward. So in Jewish custom, there's the betrothal phase where a couple is married, but they haven't like sealed the deal yet. That comes with a, a wedding feast and a consummation of the marriage. And we, as the church, are the bride of Christ. We are married. And yet, we understand that this is still incomplete. We long for something fuller. We long for this heavenly wedding feast that we've been awaiting because we want to be married in the fullness of time and united perfectly with Christ. And Isaiah hints at this heavenly wedding feast in chapter 25 of Isaiah. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And the author of Revelation picks up on the same idea as he speaks of the heavenly wedding feast that we have awaiting us. In chapter 19, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We've waited so long, but as we look to the past, and we see the way that God was among his people communing with them, we are awed. And as we look to the present, we see the unity that he has given us as we commune together in the presence of God and in the presence of one another in this weekly sacrament. And we reflect on what it means to be defined by Christ as we consider our national identity as kingdom citizens in the presence of our great king. And we hope and we long for this future that one day we will be united with the perfect lamb perfectly. So once again, we see that food is more than food when it points our gaze up from our plates 
and to heaven, to the sky, to the giver of all good and perfect gifts. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we thank you for giving us food. We thank you for using it to show your goodness and your faithfulness to us. Help us to lean on you and to learn from the small blessings, to trust in you for deeper blessings. Help us to cultivate a mindset of thankfulness and consideration that all our actions might reflect your work in our lives. Thank you for giving us feasts in the Bible to teach us what it is to commune with one another and with you. Thank you for wanting to eat with us. Help us to learn unity and humility from you that we may be one just as you are one. Come soon, Lord. We long to eat that banquet with you and to be united fully. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today and you are in need of anything, we would love to assist you here in a moment as we're about to sing. And perhaps you want to know more about that unity, that union with Christ, or perhaps you already know, but you've grown cold or disenchanted. If you'd like to study with us, we'd love to pray with you, to help you, to study. Whatever your need, whatever way we can assist you, we ask that you please come forward as we stand and sing.